definitely is a privilege to talk to the semi-famous Rick Hess of AEI, Director of Education Policy. You certainly are prolific in your writing. How many books have you written? Uh, it's a great question. Well, many. Oh, oh, yeah, more than a few. More than a few. And you have a new book, um, The Great School Rethink. And um, I really just want to have you on to talk about it because I feel like I've known you a long time. We're sort of like the old guard in education <laughs> reform. I don't know if that's become a bad word. I know you're very careful about using the word rethink instead of reform. And I guess what I have found in my long career, at least 20 years of doing this, is I've gotten more and more careful in the words I use because I've realized that there is this like sort of protected class of society that works in public education and they get their feelings hurt really quickly if you try to imply that you know you have thoughts and ideas about their line of work. Would you agree? <laughs> I mean, that's my kids all went. Th- I have three kids who went through the public school system and I've learned to just like be really careful about saying anything negative because it's like you're insulting your grandmother if you say something like maybe this isn't the best way to do things. Do you find that or? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think we have become increasingly fragile yeah. um, across the board. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, one of the problems is I think education has long been has long been a passive aggressive space. Yeah, um, I always say schools are like the most passive aggressive places I know, which is weird. Because good schools have this good, trusting, intimate culture. But, you know, when, when when I work with like teachers or like administrators, they're so they're so cautious. Um, oh, yeah. On the other hand, you know, you work in an environment where you call each other Mr. or Mrs., where you worry, uh, where you eat in the teacher's lounge. But the culture is often dominated by whoever's grumbling at the big table. And so other folks kind of and you know, it just creates an environment where it can be really hard uh, for us to talk, frankly, disagree kind of straightforwardly. And I don't think that's good for anybody. Yeah. And so uh, I actually had Andy Smerick on this podcast. He was like, we only want to talk about things in positive terms. I'm like, okay, it's not my (laughs) first approach to things. You know, I I really got into education policy when my oldest was in kindergarten and now she has a one-year-old. So it's been a long time, but it's like, I guess I've learned. And what I love about your book, The Great School Rethink, is I feel like you approach things very diplomatically like, hey, I'm not telling anyone how to do their job, but could I throw out a question or two? Could I just pose a question and we'll just talk about it? It Was that what you meant to do? Because that's very much the impression I got. And I thought it was very smart. Yeah, thanks. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, and and it's pretty easy for me because one of the things that has frustrated me um, over the over my professional career, going back to when I taught last century, um, was all the people who were like, oh, you know, we need more money. Just give us the money and trust us. Because I don't think that's worked out real well for the kids or the country. Um, the other thing that drives me crazy is reformers um, who like to hang out at West Coast Foundations or in, you know, the Department of Ed in D.C. and tell everybody else what they're supposed to do. And then when their ideas don't work, they then blame all the people who are out actually trying to do it for not doing it right. And my, my sympathy has always been like, look, I think we need to get much more uh, focused on what's not working and figure out ways to make it work better for kids and communities. But I think the people best positioned to do that are educators and parents and community leaders. And I don't see the value in either yelling at them or talking down to them. And I think we have way too much of both. 
Yeah. And so that's right. I don't see the value in it either. And I have immense respect for teachers and I could never face a classroom of second graders every day for 180 <laughs> days out of the year. Uh, and I know it, it's, it's a very hard job, but it's this, the system that's been in place for so long with very small tinkering at the margin kind of changes. And so, you know, one thing I really liked is one of the first things you address is the issue of time, because as my kids went through school, that just baffled me. And I know the pandemic was just like uh, a real eye opener in terms of like, well, I don't know, they leave at like seven in the morning and they come home at three. <laughs> what do they do all day? I mean, I, I know my kids, my kids watched a lot of movies, especially in high, middle and high school. They watched a lot of movies and there's a lot of moving around and there's stuff going on. But <laughs> I it, just this mystery, like unpack that, like, what do they do all day? And could we rethink it? Right. So how do you how would just explain a little bit about how you approach this topic of the time spent. Yeah. In yeah. And I think I, th I think it's a great kind of uh, thread for kind of this la larger um, narrative I was trying to weave, which is, you know, you. You said two things. One, like you and I both like respect educators and the people who are doing this work. But that, you know, but but nonetheless, there's a lot of stuff they're doing that I don't think is good for kids. Well, how can that be? Well, because they are working in systems that have taken shape over centuries and they're used to doing it this way and they've learned to do it this way. And the idea that they're just going to wake up one morning and be like, oh, is <laughs> just nuts. So I think so that's one way we kind of square the circle. And the time piece is a great part of this. Look, um, I think most parents, uh, if you take your kid and your kid gets on that bus at 7 a.m. and your kid gets home at 3 p.m. and they're none the worse for wear and they've got some friends and they got a mentor and they seem to kind of do OK. Parents for generations have been like, all right, I'll just trust you guys. Life's life's yeah. already hard. I've got way too much to deal with. Right. And so there was just kind of the general trust. And I think what changed over the last few years is suddenly when school's like, yeah, we're not going to take your kids. You homeschool them. You be the IT troubleshooter. You prepare the homework. You, 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 you make it happen. And we'll tell you what, we'll give you a little bit of webinar instruction where your kid turns off their camera and turns off their microphone and just stares for yeah. half an hour. And then we'll put some lousy materials online and call it asynchronous learning. And yeah. parents were suddenly asking like, well, what the hell else actually happens all day? Exactly. I thought about them for like all of these hours. And now it seems like you're telling me you can do everything you need to in 65 minutes a day. Yeah. So what were we? And so one of the things I talk about in the book is this is a wonderful opportunity for parents and communities and educators to take a hard look at like what happens in school. Where does that time go? Because this gets lost. This is rarely understood. We talk about how American kids need to catch up and spend more time in school. American kids on average spend about 100 hours more per year in school than kids in other industrial nations. Our kids go to school longer each year um, from grades K to nine, at least, where it's tracked, than kids in the, uh, the rest of the OECD nations. Now, question becomes, what happens with that time? Yeah. And there's hardly any research on this. But there was a time diary study done at Columbia University about 20 years ago right. where they found that only about 60% of time is actually used for instruction. Uh, there was a 2015 okay. study yeah. which looked, looked at the 1,100 hours a year kids spend in school in a Massachusetts district. And before they even got to looking at what happens in classrooms, uh, they knocked off about 450 hours 
that simply were programmed for kids to do all kinds of things other than learn. Yeah. And so this was a great place to start. What are we actually doing in school? Yeah. Are we putting are we putting teachers in a position where they have enough time to do what we're asking them to do? Are we making sure kids aren't sitting around twiddling their thumbs bored out of their minds? Are we making yeah. sure that minutes are being used either because they're learning or they're engaging or they're having fun or they're burning off energy because they're kids? Or are we just treating this like a warehouse? Yeah. And, and why haven't we gotten smarter about it? You mentioned Cal Newport's Deep Work, which is one of my favorite books. And I think about it a lot because I know that I'm very limited. Lots of days my job is to sit down and write papers. And I can't. I can do it an hour or two. I just, you know... You can't do those things continuously for long blocks of time. And high schools have tried block scheduling. They've tried semesters. They've tried A-B days and all that kind of stuff. Shouldn't we have more information now about um, at least questioning? I mean, anyone who's ever sent a kindergartner off for all day kindergarten, you know, the first week or so, they get off the bus. They look like they've been to war. You know what I mean? They're like, I, you know, the hair is a mess. They're exhausted. And I kind of wonder what we're doing. But that's an important institution for working families. You're like, let's just be honest about it. We need yeah. our kids to be safe somewhere all day long. But let's not pretend that we can go to a four day school week and add an hour and 15 minutes. And we're somehow balancing the scales here. That's not how it works. You're just adding more time that a kid probably can't do very much. So could we just sit down and put our heads together and think about arranging schedules in different ways? It seems like those are what you're uh, proposing. And I think, I think, you know, and what's funny is it needs to start with what are we doing with the time now? A guy named Matt Kraft, professor Brown, did a study which should be done 40 times a year across the country. First time I've ever seen it done. Back in 2019, he and a few grad students sat in Providence, Rhode Island schools uh, for a long time. And they just tracked how many interruptions were there a day. Oh, yeah. And, what, and they estimated that the average Providence, Rhode Island classroom was interrupted 2,000 times a year. The total time sink from like when the, when it blew up to when they were back to learning was about 10 to 20 instructional days. Yeah. So that's about, right, four, two to four weeks of kids' time in school just watching their classmates just – Doors opening, doors closing, people knocking. This is crazy. Yeah. But when you sit down, even with principals and superintendents who are recognized as data hounds, they can talk you inside out about their reading and math scores and by subgroups, but they just don't have this information. Yeah. And so for me, how do we start? We start by actually sitting down with 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 educators and all right, where you know, watching them. Yeah. Where's time going? How do we get your time back? How yeah. do we use that time better? It might be formal scheduling. It might be changing routines. In Japan, for instance, one ha- one trick they use, and mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily for it, but it's just a one way to think about it. Instead of having kids transition classroom to classroom, they have teachers transition, which picks sure. them up like in a middle school environment, like 25 minutes a day. Now, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not necessarily crazy about that. I like kids getting up and moving. Yeah. But- it's not necessarily about building different schedules. It can be, but it can also just be about thinking very differently about yeah. how are we using kids' time and teachers' time. Oh, this is another one of those things we just take for granted. That's just how it is. And the teachers in the front and the kids, are, like, we just take for granted that's how it is and it, you can't question it. And that's the point. And I want to get to some of the other things you question teachers. I mean, there has got to be, I talk about it all the time because I work on teacher pension issues, but there has got to be a more professional professional way to pay these professionals than step and ladder, uh, defined benefit, con- uh, defined benefit retirement plans. I mean, we treat them like 
uh, truck drivers. And then they're like, but we're like lawyers and accountants. And it's like, but you're not. Your profession looks more like this, right? So could we get smarter without offending anybody? And I think the group that jumps in first are the older teachers to say, no, 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 no. I did this. (laughs) Everyone else has to. But uh, so what are the kind of questions we should be asking about that? Well, I think one is, you know, we've got a teaching model that made a lot of sense, like in the 1830s, when (laughs) Horace Mann was trying to you know, get one room schoolhouses where kids would read the King James Bible. So Catholic kids would be less Catholic. Like that was the goal. And for that cheap labor, you want it. And and men were too expensive. So they feminized teaching and stuck women in front of these classrooms. Um, There's all kinds of problems with that model. Um, If you think about, you know, how professions work today, you mentioned accounting, you know, or law or engineering or architecture or medicine, all of the knowledge professions there's an understanding that some people are more skilled and better trained than other people. It yeah. doesn't mean they're better people. It just means like if you need heart surgery, you'd rather have a cardio a trained cardiovascular surgeon yeah. rather than somebody who's like an emergency medical tech cutting open your heart. It doesn't mean like you'd rather have them a Christmas dinner. It just means yeah. they've got yeah. skills. Yes. And in schools, though, we've got three and a half million teachers. And we've got some who were phenomenal K-3 literacy instructors and some who aren't. We've got some who are amazing mentors and some who aren't. We've got some who can teach calculus and algebra, so it makes sense, and some who can't. And we just have them all basically operating interchangeably. They all do bus duty. They all wander the hallways. You know, I always say, look, if you went into an, if you, you know, were watching a a, a surgery of a, of a student, I say it's the principals, you know, one of your students and, a, and the best pediatric surgeon in the state has, is operating on the kid. And at the 90 minute mark, she starts peeling off her gloves and you say, doc, what are you doing? The kid's on the table. <laughs> and she's like, oh, it's my turn to go feed the patient's jello, but don't worry. The worst <laughs> pediatric surgeon in the state's going to take over from here. You'd be like, this is stupid. Yeah. It's not about. And, and But we've somehow made like, you know, the, yes, it'd be great if every teacher was good. Yes, it would be great if we knew how to do professional development that helped. We don't so far. Um, that would all be swell. But for the teachers we have, what are we doing to match their skills so that they're serving kids well and we're squeezing all the juice we can out of them? Yeah. And then what are we doing to put those teachers who are better trained, who are better at helping their colleagues get better, who are better at instructing kids? And putting them in positions where they have a bigger impact and get compensated accordingly. I was going to say market wages too, right? Like exactly. It, it so there's models, you know. There's uh, the opportunity culture model that Brian Hassel's developed the public impact. Uh, there's uh, the new education workforce model. Uh, the Carol Brasile. Did the Milken Foundation do something a long time ago? The teacher project, but it yep, was very expensive. The they had project. like leads and yeah, they yeah they like like career teachers and lead teachers and yeah. that's you know, people have been thinking about it, just hasn't really taken hold. And it's part, partly because you run into collective bargaining agreements and you yeah. run into teacher record requirements and you run into, you know, there's any number of things. But but just for folks to understand, especially for teachers to understand what this means in practice, um, right? We have defaulted and it just, you know, teachers have not seen a real after inflation increase in pay in decades, even though real per pupil after inflation spending has increased substantially. Where's the money going? It's going, as you mentioned, to benefits. It's going to adding more bodies. It's especially going to adding non-teachers, administrators and staff. Just to set aside the administrator question, if we had simply, instead of using dollars for teachers, 
um, use those dollars to pay the nation's teachers better instead of adding teachers, say going back to the, the early mid 70s. What we have done is we have roughly doubled the number of teachers per students over the last 40, over the last 45, 50 years. Right. Um, if we had instead hired more teachers at the same rate we added students and put every one of those dollars into just paying those teachers better, average teacher pay today nationally would be around $130,000. Average pay would be about 130k. So you'd have a bunch of teachers making 180, right? You'd have some making 110. We have chosen to make teaching a low-paying profession by putting those dollars into quantity rather than into paying the professionals um, better. So this brings up a question because you do these questions and exercises in the book. Who is your book written for? Uh, It's written. So it's written for uh, community leaders, written for policymakers, written for school and system leaders written for uh, teacher leaders, uh, and then written for uh, parent leaders and organizers. Yeah. Okay, I want to get to school choice because that's the thing I work on all the time. And, you know, to me, that's more of like an an outcome of doing more thinking, which is like the more we think about it, the more ideas we generate, the more differentiation we could have in our school system, you know, the more portfolio approach or pluralistic system uh, we could have. And then we could just let people pick. It, but you, your take is much more nuanced. So what's your take on that? Um, I don't know how much more nuanced. I mean, it's I not a like panacea. That. I've never said it was a panacea, but right. it's, but it's like, uh, there's, I'm always reminding people there's a, a million reasons why a school might not work. It could be the schedule. It could be like, I don't know what they're doing all day. It could be anything. And it could be great for one kid and terrible for the next kid in your own, in your same family. Right. So yeah. trapping, I, mean, I, think, I don't yeah. know. So I think a couple of things. First, um, we've had this really weird debate um that 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 the choice community has allowed itself to be suckered into i think which is are you for public education or are you for empowering parents yeah and the only people who talk this way are advocates like every normal human being out there is like well i like my <laughs> i like my local schools and i want more choices and uh, yeah. And so when we've been suckered into this kind of false um, false divide, because 75% of parents will give their kids school an A or B, and 75% of parents support pretty much any choice program you throw at them. Like, we don't need to add, we don't need to say, you know, you need to blow up school school districts or be uh, for abolishing zip codes in order to be with us. Yeah. That's one. Uh, Second thing is we've allowed kind of choice among schools, school choice to be this weird thing in isolation because education, like you're just talking about, it could be scheduling, it could be instruction. Schooling is nothing but a million choices every day. What disciplinary code does a school choose to use? How much homework does a school choose to assign? How What kinds of tests do they choose to use? Uh, which uh, extracurriculars does your kid choose? Which are, All of these things are choices. And yeah. so for us who support educational choice, to have allowed them to ever anybody to ever suggest that it's weird that families would want one of those millions of choices to be oh and I can move to a different school if this doesn't work for my kid yeah. was just nuts. The yeah, pandemic- I mean, I know that you're an alumni, but like Mike McShane points out, people start at Harvard and like that's nah, not for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's Harvard, but yeah. they're like that's nah, not for me. It's it's not like um, I think there's a lot of fear on the part of people like superintendents 
in Missouri anyway, that it's going to make them look bad because people are gonna be like, if I can get out, I'm getting out. Uh, but when the states that have more robust systems like Arizona have have had open enrollment for a long time, kids come in, kids go out. The most popular, the fanciest districts, 4,000 come in, 4,000 go out. It isn't like, you know, they don't all gravitate to one and leave one. And people, I, I am sure, make different choices for different kids in their family. And there's a cost involved. You probably want your kid to go to the neighborhood school and have their friends live in the neighborhood. So you're only going to do it if you're willing to pay that cost. Yeah. I mean, you know, and there's, I mean, it's weird. We've made this a uniquely like emo- emotional, personal thing in education. Look, people leave medical practices all the time. Yeah. They either, they're they're the doctor they liked, retired, or they didn't have a good experience, or it turns out to be inconvenient. They change law firms. You know, working in a professional field means that you respect that your clients are sometimes going to make other choices. And like, this should be cool. The crazy thing about um, what's gone on, though, with the pandemic, the crazy thing in the sense that a lot of this suddenly feels a lot of this that we were caught up in for decades suddenly feels like yesterday's news is, you know, for for my entire professional career, it's felt like we talk about school choice kind of like we talk about Medicaid. Um, it's for people, it's for poor people trapped in lousy or unsafe schools. And, you know, the famous political science dictum about programs for poor people is that they're poor programs because the affluent and connected don't have any investment in them. And what happened during COVID is suddenly educational choice changed from Medicaid to Medicare. Now, all of these people who'd moved to their house because they liked their school or were in private school still said like, oh, well, I want more choices because it turns out, A, it wasn't safe. B, um, I don't trust these guys to reopen or be there for me in right. the same way I used to. And that doesn't mean I want to move from school A to school B, but it might mean I want course, might mean I want course choice. It might mean I want opportunity, you know, over half of folks at choice uh, polling shows want to have their kid at home at least one day a week now. Fascinating. Fascinating Shocking. I might be interested in micro school opportunities. Yeah. So what's happened is it's also moved us off of just school choice. Families who are desperate to get out of a school that doesn't work for them yeah. to a school that does. And it's moved us into this conversation about educational choice where families can like their schools and, lo- and, and have a deep affection for public schooling and still want the ability to make sure that what their what their kids getting it meets their needs. Yeah, which is a great segue because, uh, you know, I've asked a bunch of people this question. Is this an inflection point? Is this an elbow? What did the pandemic, you know, I hate this example, but Hurricane Katrina washed out New Orleans public schools, right? They kind of got a big do-over. Are we get, Are we in this do-over moment? I mean, you've written this great guide for people, gives people a lot to think about. It's a lot of food for thought. Do you think 10 years from now, we're going to look back or 20 and go, wow, everything changed in 2020? No, or a lot of um, no, you know, I mean, that, that's not that's, you know, even in New Orleans, I think a lot of folks would say it didn't change as much. And, right. you know, the city schools were basically vacuum shut uh, for a year. Everybody was fired. The whole deal. Um, no, I mean, you know, I mean, we pumped another two hundred billion dollars into these schools. Uh, the same people uh, are in charge who were in charge of state uh, districts and SEAs you know, yep. four years ago, um, the, 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 the constellation around it hasn't changed fundamentally. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's a lot of opportunities here. And I think, uh, you know, certainly the expansion of choice, 
in the ways we just talked about creates a lot of room for problem solving and reinvention. And I think it's going to come down to, you know, you see a lot of appetite on the part of a lot of parents who had previously just kind of been like, all right, I trust you guys know what you're doing, who no longer do. Right. Um, I think you see educators who feel stressed or like they've seen new opportunities, um, who are, you know, interested in exploring new possibilities. I think there are certainly advocates and funders who are trying to support some of these efforts. Um, you know, I mean, I think the, the you know, like the safe bet is always that 10 or 20 years out is going to be more like today than it's going to be different from today. Um, but that's only true until the world actually changes. Right. And then, and so I think the real question is going to be um, how, how, how successful are we going to be at taking advantage of this opportunity? And yeah. I think that's got to begin with straight talk and, you know, um, realistic appraisals and creative thinking and then constructive organizing. And if we do that, I think we got a good chance to make and this a moment that matters. We have to be able to talk about some of these things without being like, I, I feel like I'm often accused of like hating kids or hating school, you know, and I do not in any way, shape or form. Like we need to be able to bring up these questions and I uh, have only taught college. I've never taught in a K-12 classroom. So that gives me less legitimacy lots of times. But I think we need to be able to raise these questions. And I do think we have a lot of parent momentum right now. How long it's going to stick around, I don't know, because I'm sure a lot of people are kind of glad that their kids are back in school from seven to three. You know what I mean? Like things kind of getting back to normal. But there is a lot of, you know, there's been momentum. And you live in Virginia that supposedly was a big impact on the governor's race. And I think some politicians are feeling a little bit of heat from the uh, potentially significant parent uh, political group. I don't know if it's going to pan out or not. It didn't really in the last round of elections, but um, you know, I think it's great. I love the exposure that happened in the pandemic. Most, most of the pandemic was terrible, but I love the exposure that happened that, you know, I think parents, we gave a lot of power to the system and, and now we should probably balance it out a little bit and not, and, you know, I talk to people in Missouri all the time are very upset about some of the things the schools are doing. And they're just realizing, like, you can take some of that power back. You can parent involvement is not just laminating, you know, and PTAs, but you could take some of that power back and they should listen to you. I, I hope it's a bit of a wake up call for some of the forces like teachers unions and some of those groups to to at least be more responsive. Yeah. Maybe. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you would hope. Yeah, well, thanks so much. This was great. And uh, I love the book, The Great School Rethink. And these are the kind of questions we need to be asking right now. And uh, I, I hope I hope people do. That's my takeaway. Yeah, yeah, I'm thanks with you. Hey, uh, thanks for the time. Good to be with you.